This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on 91.9 KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I'll be reading Time Enough at Last and Homesick by Lynn Venable. Homesick first appeared in Galaxy Science Fiction, December 1952. The music for this show is experimental music from 1952, the same time period as the stories. Now we are currently listening to Invention in Twelve Notes for Flute and Tape by Otto Lewing, which was created in 1952. Otto Lewing was a German-American composer and conductor, and an early pioneer of tape and electronic music. Just to let you know a little bit about the author, Marilyn Venable was born in 1927. There's very little information published about her, other than a 2012 interview. Um, Other than that, she is heavily referenced to the fact that she wrote Time Enough at Last, which was turned into a famous Twilight Zone episode, episode 8, season 1. Marilyn Venable published six short stories between 1952 and 1957 under the name Lynn Venable. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on 91.9 KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'll be reading Homesick today by Len Venable. It was originally published in Galaxy Science Fiction, December 
Langston pushed listlessly at a red checker with his right forefinger. He knew the move would cost him a man, but he lacked enough interest in the game to plot out a safe move. His opponent, James, jumped the red disc with a black king and removed it from the board. Gregory, across the room, flicked rapidly through pages of a magazine, too rapidly to be reading anything, or even look at the pictures. Ross lay quietly on his bunk, staring out of the viewport. The four were strangely alike in appearance, nearly the same age, the age where the gray hairs finally outnumbered the black, or baldness takes over, the age when the expanding waistline had begun to sag tiredly, when robust middle age begins the slow, accelerating decline towards senality. A strange group to find aboard a spaceship, but then the Columbus was a very strange ship. Bolted to its outer hull, just under the viewports, were wooden boxes full of red geraniums. And ivy wound Tina's green fronds over the gleaming hull that had withstood the bombardment of pinpoint meteors and turned away the deadly power of naked cosmic rays. Frankston glanced at his wrist chrono. It was one minute to six. In about a minute, he thought, Ross will say something about going out to water his geraniums. The wrist chrono ticked 59 times. I think I'll go out and water my geraniums, said Ross. No one glanced up. Then Gregory threw his magazine on the floor. Ross got up and walked, limping slightly, to a wall locker. He pulled out the heavy, ungainly spacesuit and the big metal bulb of a headpiece. He carried them to his bunk and laid them carefully down. Will someone please help me on with my suit? He asked. For one moment long... No one moved. Then James got up and began to help Ross fit his legs into the suit. Ross had arthritis, not badly, but enough so that he needed help climbing into a spacesuit. James pulled the heavy folds of the suit up around Ross's body and held it while Ross extended his arm into the sleeve sections. His hands in the heavy gauntlets were too unwieldy to do the front fastenings and he stood silently while James did it for him. Ross lifted the helmet, staring at it as a cripple might regard a wheelchair which he loathed but was wholly dependent on. Then he fitted the helmet over his head, and James fastened it down and lifted the oxygen tank to his back. Ready? asked James. The bulbous headpiece inclined in a nod. James walked to a panel and threw a switch marked inner lock. A round aperture slid silently open. Ross stepped through it, and the door shut behind him as James threw the switch back to its original position. Opposite the switch marked outer lock, a signal glowed redly, and James threw another switch. A moment later, the signal flickered out. Frankston, with a violent gesture, swept the checkerboard clean. Red and black men clattered to the floor, rolling and spinning. Nobody picked them up. What does he do it for? demanded Frankston in a tight voice. What does he get out of those stinking geraniums he can't smell or touch? Shut up, said Gregory. James looked up sharply. Curtness was unusual for Gregory. A bad sign. Frankston was the one 
He'd been watching, the one who'd shown signs of cracking. But after so long, even a psycho-expert's opinion might be haywire. Who was the yardstick? Who was normal? Geraniums don't smell much anyway, added Gregory, in a more conciliatory tone. Yeah, agreed Frankston. I'd forgot that. But why does he torture himself like this? And us too. Because that's what he wanted to do, answered James. Sure, agreed Gregory. The whole trip, the last twenty years of it, anyhow, all he could talk about was how, when he got back to Earth, he was going to buy a little place in the country and raise flowers. Well, we're back, muttered Frankston, with a terrible bitterness. He's raising flowers, but not in any little place in the country. Gregory continued almost dreamily. Remember the last night out? We were all gathered around the view screen, and there was Earth, getting bigger and greener and closer all the time. Remember what it felt like to be going back after thirty years. Thirty years cooped up in this ship, grumbled Frankston. All our twenties and thirties and forties. But we were coming home. There was a rapt expression on Gregory's lined and weathered face. We were looking forward to the twenty or maybe thirty good years we had left. Talking about what we'd do, where'd we'd live, wondering what had changed on Earth. At least we had that last night out. All the data was stashed away in the microfiles. All the data about the planets with air we couldn't breathe and food we couldn't eat. We were going home, home to a big, friendly, green Earth. Frankston's face suddenly crumbled as though he were about to weep, and he cradled his head against his arms. God, do we have to go over it again? Not again tonight. Leave him alone, ordered James, with an inflection of command in his voice. Go to the other section of the ship if you don't want to listen. He has to keep going over it, just like Ross has to keep watering his geraniums. Frankston remained motionless, and Gregory looked grateful at James. James was a steady one. It was easier for him because he understood. Gregory's face became more and more animated as he lost himself, living again in his recollections. The day we blasted in the crowds, thousands of people, all there to see us come. We were proud. Of course we thought we were the first to land, just like we'd been the first to go out. Those cheers, coming from thousands of people at once. For us, Ross, Lieutenant Ross, was the first one out of the lock. We decided that he'd been in command for almost ten years, ever since Commander Stevens died. You remember Stevens, don't you? He took over when we lost Captain Willers. Well, anyway, Ross was the first one out, and then you, James, and you, Frankston, and then Trippett. And me last, because you were all specialists and I was just a crewman. The crewman, I should say. The only one left. Ross hesitated and almost stumbled when he stepped out, and tears began pouring from his eyes. But I thought, well, you know, coming home after 30 years and all that. But when I stepped out of the lock, 
My eyes stuck like fire, and thousands of needles seemed to jab my skin. And then the president himself stepped forward with the flowers. That's where the real trouble began, with the flowers. I remember Ross stretching out his arms to take a bouquet, like a mother reaching for a baby. Then he suddenly dropped them, sneezing and coughing and sobbing for breath, and the president reached out to help him, asking him over and over what was wrong. It was the same with all of us, and we turned and staggered back to the ship, closing the lock behind us. It was bad then. God, I'll never forget it. The five of us moaning in agony, gasping for breath, our eyes swollen shut, and the itching, that itching. Gregory shuddered. Even the emotionally disciplined James set his teeth and felt his scalp crawl at the memory of that horror. He glanced towards the viewport, as though to cleanse his mind of the memory. He could see Ross out there, among the geraniums, moving slowly and painfully in his heavy space suit. Occupational therapy. Ross watered flowers, and Gregory talked, and Frankston was bitter, and himself, observation mainly. Gregory's voice began again. And then they were pounding on the lock, begging us to let a doctor in. But we were all rolling and thratching with the itching, burning, sneezing, and finally James got himself under control, enough to open the locks and let them in. Then came the tests, allergy tests. Remember those? They'd cut a little row of scratches in your arm. Each man instinctively glanced at his forearm, saw neat rows of tiny pink scars, row on row. That they'd put a little powder on each cut, and each kind of powder was the extract of some common substance which we would be allergic to. The chart they made was full of peas, peas for positive, long columns of big red peas, all pollen, dust, wool, nylon, cotton, fish, meat, fruit, vegetables, grain, milk, whiskey, cigarettes, dogs, cats, everything. And wasn't it funny about us being allergic to women's face powder? Ha! We are allergic to women from their nylon hose to their face powder. Thirty years of breathing purified, sterilized, filtered air. Thirty years of drinking the distilled water. And swallowing synthetic food tablets had changed us. The only thing we weren't allergic to were the metal and plastic and synthetics of our ship. This ship. We're allergic to Earth. That's funny, isn't it? Gregory began to rock back and forth, laughing the thin, high laugh of hysteria. James silently walked to a water hydrant and filled a plastic cup. He brought Gregory a small white pill. You wouldn't take this with the rest of us at supper. You better take it now. You need it. Gregory nodded bleakly. Sobering at once and swallowed the pellet, he made a face after the water. Distilled, he spat. Distilled, no flavor, no life. Like us, distilled. If only we could have blasted off again, Frankston's voice came muffled through his hands. It wouldn't have made any difference where, anywhere or nowhere, 
No, our fine ship is obsolete, and we're old. Much too old. They have the space drive now. Men don't make thirty-year junkets into space and come back allergic to Earth. They go out, in a month or two, they're back. With their hair still black and their eyes still bright and their uniforms still fit. A month or two is all. Those crowds that cheered us, they were proud of us and sorry for us because we'd been out thirty years and they'd never expect us back at all. But it was inconvenient for Spaceport. Bitter sarcasm tinged his voice. They actually had to postpone the regular monthly transgalactic run to let us in with this big, clumsy hulk. Why didn't we ever see any of the new ships either going out or coming back? Asked Gregory. Frankston shook his head. You don't see a ship when it's in space drive. It's out of normal space-time dimensions. We had a smattering of theory at cadet school. Anyway... If one did flash into normal space-time, say, for instance, coming in for a landing, the probability of us being at the same place at the same time was almost nil. Two ships passing in the night, as the old saying goes. Gregory nodded. I guess Trippet was the lucky one. You didn't see Trippet die, replied James. What was it? asked Frankston. What killed Trippet? So quickly, too. He was only outside a few minutes, like the rest of us, and eight hours later, he was dead. We couldn't be sure, answered James. Some viruses, there are countless varieties. People live in a contaminated atmosphere all their lives, build up a resistance to them. Sometimes a particularly violent strain will produce an epidemic, but most people, if they're affected of a mild case of whatever it is, and recover. But after 30 years in space, 30 years of breathing perfectly pure, uncontaminated air, Tripp had no antibodies in his bloodstream. The virus hit, and he died. But why didn't the rest of us get it? Asked Gregory. Those people talked about building a home for us, muttered Frankston. Why didn't they? It wouldn't have been any different, answered James gently. It would have been the same, almost an exact duplicate of this ship. Everything but the rockets. Same metal and plastic and filters, air and synthetic food. It couldn't have had wool rugs or down pillows or smiling wives or fresh air or eggs for breakfast. It would have been just like this. So since the ship was obsolete, they gave it to us and a plot of ground to anchor it to. And we're home. They did the best they could for us. The very best they could. But I feel stifled. Stuck in. The ship is large, Frankston. We all crowd into this section because, without each other, we'd go mad. James kicked the edge of the magazine on the floor. Thank God we're not allergic to decontaminated paper. They're still reading. We're getting old, said Gregory. Someday one of us will be here alone. God help him, then answered James, with more emotion than was usual for him. During the latter part of the conversation, the little red signal had been flashing persistently. Finally, James saw it. Ross was in the outer lock. James threw the decontaminator switch, and the signal winked out. Every trace of dust and pollen 
would have been removed from Ross's suit before he could come inside the ship. Just like on an alien planet, commented Gregory. Isn't that what this is to us? An alien planet? asked Frankston, and neither of the other men dared answer his bitter question. A few minutes later, Ross was back in the cabin, and James helped him out of his spacesuit. How were those geraniums, Ross? asked Gregory. Fine, said Ross, enthusiastically. They're doing just fine. He walked over to his bunk and lay down on his side so he could see out of the viewport. There would be an hour left before darkness fell, an hour to watch the geraniums. They were tall and red and swayed slightly in the evening breeze. with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on 91.9 KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was Homesick by Len Venable. It was originally published in Galaxy Science Fiction, December 1952. In the background, you heard Harpsichord Concerto by Frank Martin. Um, Harpsichord Concerto was originally commissioned by Isabel Neff. It was composed in 1951 and first performed in 1952. This recording was performed by Isabel Neff on the harpsichord with L'Ensemble Orchestral de L'Oiseau Lire, directed by Louis de Fromont. Just to let you know a little bit about the author, Marilyn Venable, she was born in 1927. There's very little information about her online, um, except I found an interview with her um, in 19... No, the In 2012. Other than the stories that she's written, um, there's also a lot of reference to her for the fact that she wrote the short story Time Enough at Last, which is a famous Twilight Zone episode. When Marilyn was 18, she married and moved to New Jersey in Austin, Texas. Around that time was when she first started reading science fiction magazines. At that time, the magazines had large sections for letters to the editor where people would write in about the articles and others would write in about the letter. So kind of like our uh, old school message boards. Um, Marilyn was active in these conversations, and her well-written letters caught the eye of literary agent Forrest J. Ackerman, who offered to represent her, and started selling her work for about $20 a story. She published six short stories between 1952 and 1957. Uh, She was once asked, Why do you write these things? Why do you scare yourself? And she said, I don't scare myself. I scare other people. Her story, Time Enough at Last, caught the eye of Rod Sterling, who bought it for $500, which would be the equivalent of about $4,250 today. She never met him and wasn't consulted on the show. She said, once he bought it, no royalties or anything. 
She was pleased with the final episode because he kept close to her original story. Not long after the episode, her career in science fiction died. Forrest Ackerman ditched her because she didn't want to write as much as he demanded, so she got a job at a credit bureau, trade magazine, and freelanced for everything from Sunday school newsletters to baby care magazines. That was Low Speed for Flute and Tape by Otto Lewing, which was created in 1952. As mentioned earlier, Otto Clarence Lewin was a German-American composer and an early pioneer of tape music and electronic music. The 1952 concert with Vladimir Uzachevsky at the Museum of Modern Art in New York introduced fantasy in space, flute recording, manipulation on magnetic tape. Next, I'll be reading Time Enough at Last by Len Venable. It was originally published in IF, January 1953. For a long time, Henry Bemis had had an ambition. To read a book. Not just the title or the preface, or a page somewhere in the middle. He wanted to read the whole thing, all the way through, from beginning to end. A simple ambition, perhaps, but in the cluttered life of Henry Bemis, an impossibility. Henry had no time of his own. There was his wife, Agnes, who owned that part of it that his employer, Mr. Carvesville, did not buy. Henry was allowed enough to get to and from work, that in itself being quite a concession on Agnes's part. Also, nature had conspired against Henry by handing him with a pair of hopelessly myopic eyes. Poor Henry literally couldn't see his hand in front of his face. For a while, when he was very young, his parents had thought him an idiot. When they realized it was his eyes, they got glasses for him. He was never quite able to catch up. There was never enough time. It looked as though Henry's ambition would never be realized. Then something happened which would change all that. Henry was down in the vault of Eastside Bank and Trust when it happened. He had stolen a few moments from the duties of his teller's cage to try to read a few pages of the magazine he had bought that morning. He'd made an excuse to Mr. Carsville about needing bills in larger denominations for a certain customer. And then, safe inside the dim recesses of the vault, he had pulled from inside his coat the pocket-sized magazine. He had just started a picture article cheerfully entitled The New Weapons and What They'll Do to You when all the noise in the world crashed upon his eardrums. It seemed to be inside of him and outside of him all at once. Then the concrete floor was rising up at him and the ceiling came slanted down towards him and for a fleeting second Henry thought of a story he had started to read once called the pit and the pendulum. He regretted in that insane moment that he had never had time to finish that story to see how it came out. Then all was darkness and quiet and unconsciousness. When Henry came to, he knew that something was desperately wrong with the East Side Bank and Trust. The heavy steel door of the vault was buckled and twisted and the floor tilted up at a dizzying angle, while the ceiling dipped crazily towards it. Henry gingerly got to his feet, 
moving arms and legs experimentally. Assured that nothing was broken, he tenderly raised a hand to his eyes. His precious glasses were intact. Thank God. He would never have been able to find his way out of the shattered vault without them. He made a mental note to write Dr. Torrance to have a spare pair made and mailed to him. Blasted nuisance not having his prescription on file locally, but Henry trusted no one but Dr. Torrance to grind those thick lenses into his own complicated prescription. Henry removed the heavy glasses from his face. Instantly, the room dissolved into a neutral blur. Henry saw a pink splash that he knew was his hand, and a white blob come to meet the pink as he withdrew his pocket handkerchief and carefully dusted the lenses. As he replaced the glasses, they slipped down on the bridge of his nose a little. He had been meaning to have them tightened for some time. He suddenly realized, without the realization actually entering his conscious thoughts, that something momentous had happened, something worse than the boiler blowing up, something worse than a gas main exploding, something worse than anything that had ever happened before. He felt that way because it was so quiet. There were no whine of sirens, no shouting, no running, just an ominous and and all-pervading silence. Henry walked across the slanted floor, slipping and stumbling on the uneven surface. He made his way to the elevator. The car lay, crumpled at the foot of the shaft like a discarded accordion. There was something inside of it that Henry could not look at. Something that had once been a person, or perhaps several people. It was impossible to tell now. Feeling sick, Henry staggered towards the stairway. The steps were still there, but so jumbled and piled back upon one another that it was more like climbing the side of a mountain than mounting a stairway. It was quiet in that huge chamber that had been the lobby of the bank. It looked strangely cheerful, with the sunlight shining through the girders where the ceiling had fallen. The dappled sunlight glinted across the silent lobby, and everywhere there were huddled lumps of unpleasantness that made Henry sick as he tried not to look at them. Mr. Carsville? he called. It was very quiet. Something had to be done, of course. This was terrible, right in the midday of a Monday, too. Mr. Carsville would know what to do. He called again, more loudly, and his voice cracked hoarsely. Mr. Carsville! And then he saw an arm and a shoulder extending out from under a huge fallen block of marble ceiling. In the buttonhole was the white carnation Mr. Carsville had worn to work that morning, and on the third finger of the hand was a massive signet ring also belonging to Mr. Carsville. Numbly, Henry realized that the rest of Mr. Carsville was under that block of marble. Henry felt a pang of real sorrow. Mr. Carsville was gone, and so was the rest of the staff, Mr. Wilkinson and Mr. Emery and Mr. Prithard, and the same with Pete and Ralph and Jenkins and Hunter and Pat, the guard... And Willie, the doorman, 
There was no one to say what was to be done about East Side Bank and trust except Henry Bemis. And Henry wasn't worried about the bank. There was something he wanted to do. He climbed carefully over the piles of fallen masonry. Once he stepped down into something that crunched and squished beneath his feet, and he set his teeth on edge to keep from retching. The street was not much different from the inside. Bright sunlight and so much concrete to crawl over. But the unpleasantness was much, much worse. Everywhere there was a strange, motionless lump that Henry could not look at. Suddenly he remembered Agnes. He should be trying to get to Agnes, shouldn't he? He remembered a poster he had seen once that said, In the event of emergency, do not use the telephone. Your loved ones are as safe as you. He wondered about Agnes. He looked at the smashed automobile with some of their four wheels pointed skywards, like the stiffened legs of dead animals. He couldn't get to Agnes now anyway. If she was safe, then she was safe. Otherwise, of course Henry knew Agnes wasn't safe. He had a feeling that there wasn't anyone safe for a long, long way. Maybe not in the whole state, or the whole country, or the whole world. No, that was a thought Henry Bemis didn't want to think. He forced it from his mind and turned his thoughts back to Agnes. She had been a pretty good wife, now that it was all said and done. It wasn't exactly her fault if people didn't have time to read nowadays. It was just that there was the house and the bank and the yard. There was the Jones for bridge and the Graysons for canasta and charades with the Bryants. And the television, the television Agnes loved to watch but would never watch alone. He never had time to read even a newspaper. He started thinking about last night, that business about the newspaper. Henry had settled into his chair quietly, afraid that the creaking spring might call to Agnes's attention the fact that he was momentarily unoccupied. He had unfolded the newspaper slowly and carefully. The sharp crackle of the paper would have been a clarion call to Agnes. He had glanced at the headlines on the first page. Collapse of conference eminent. He didn't have time to read the article. He turned to the second page. Solon predicts war only days away. He flipped through the pages faster, reading brief snatches here and there, afraid to spend too much time on any one item. On the back page was a brief article entitled, Prehistoric Artifacts Unearthed in Yucatan. Henry smiled to himself and carefully folded the sheet of paper into fourths. That would be interesting. He would read all of it. Then it came, Agnes's voice. Henry! And then she was upon him. She lightly flicked the paper out of his hand and into the fireplace. He saw the flames lick and curl possessively around the unread article. Agnes continued. Henry, tonight is the Joneses' bridge night. They'll be here in 30 minutes, and I'm not dressed yet, and here you are reading. She had emphasized the last word as though it were an unclean act. 
Hurry and shave. You know how smooth Jasper Jones' chin always looks. And then straighten up this room. She glanced regretfully towards the fireplace. Oh dear, that paper. The television schedule. Oh well, after the Jones leave, there won't be any time for anything but the late, late movie, and... Don't just sit there. Henry, hurry! Henry was hurrying now, but hurrying too much. He cut his leg on a twisted piece of metal that had once been an automobile fender. Then he thought about things like lockjaw and gangrene, and this hand trembled as he tied his pocket knife around the wound. In his mind, he saw the fire again, licking across the face of the last night's newspaper. He thought now he would have time to read all the newspapers. He wanted to, only now there wouldn't be any more. That heap of rubble across the street had been the Gazette building. It was terrible to think there would never be another up-to-date newspaper. Agnes would have been very upset. No television schedule. But then, of course, no television. He wanted to laugh, but he didn't. That wouldn't have been fitting. Not at all. He could see the building he was now looking for, but the silhouette was strangely changed. The great circular dome was now a ragged semicircle, half of it gone, and one of the great wings of the building had fallen in upon itself. A sudden panic gripped Henry Bemis. What if they were all ruined, destroyed, every one of them? What if there wasn't a single one left? Tears of helplessness welled in his eyes as he painfully fought his way over and through the twisted fragments of the city. He thought of the building when it had been whole. He remembered the many nights he had paused outside its wide and welcoming doors. He thought of the warm nights when the doors had been thrown open and he could see people inside, see them sitting at plain wooden tables with stacks of books beside them. He used to think then what a wonderful thing a public library was, a place where anybody, anyone could go and read. He had been tempted to enter many times. He had watched the people through the open doors, the man in greasy work clothes who sat near the door, night after night, laboriously studying, a technical journal, perhaps, difficult for him, but promising a brighter future. There had been an aged, scholarly gentleman who sat on the other side of the door, leisurely paging, moving his lips a little as he did so. A man having little time left, but rich in the time because he could do with it as he chose. Henry had never gone in. He had started up the steps once, got almost to the door. But then he remembered Agnes, her questions and shouting, and he turned away. He was going in now, though, almost crawling, his breath coming in stabbing gasps, his hands torn and bleeding. His trouser leg was sticky red where the wound in his leg had soaked through the handkerchief. It was throbbing badly, but Henry didn't care. He had reached his destination. Part of the inscription was still there, over the now doorless entrance. P-U-B... C-L-I-B-R. The rest had been torn away. The place was in shambles. The shelves were overturned. 
broken, smashed, tilted, their precious contents spilled in disorder upon the floor. A lot of the books, Henry noted gleefully, were still intact, still whole, still readable. He was literally knee-deep in them. He wallowed in books. He picked one up. The title was Collected Works of William Shakespeare. Yes, he must read that, sometime. He laid it aside carefully. He picked up another, Spinoza. He tossed it away, seized another, and another, and still another. Which to read first? There were so many. He had conducted himself a little like a starving man in a delicatessen, grabbing a little of this and a little of that in a frenzy of enjoyment. But now he steadied away. From the pile about him, he selected one volume, sat comfortably down on an overturned shelf, and opened the book. Henry Bemis smiled. There was the rubble of complaining stone, minute in comparison with epic complaints following the fall of the bomb. This one occurred under one corner of the shelf upon which Henry sat. The shelf moved, threw him off balance. The glasses slipped from his nose and fell with a tinkle. He bent down, clawing blindly, and found, finally, their smashed remains. A minor indirect destruction stemming from the sudden wholesale smashing of a city, but the only one that greatly interests Henry Bemis. He stared down at the blurred page before him. He began to cry. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on 91.9 KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was Time Enough at Last by Len Venable. It was originally published in If, January 1953. The music for this show is experimental music from 1952, the same time period as the stories in the background. Um, so in the background you heard... Spiel for oboe, bass clarinet, piano, and four percussionists, played by Klagforum Vienne, conducted by Emilio Pormarcio. The first performance of it was in July 21st, 1952. Stockhausen regarded Spiel as his first original composition, as opposed to the style imitation exercises he did as part of his music studies. According to the composer, it was influenced by Olivier 
Messins, Mode de Valeur et de Tensity in 1949, and it's one of the earliest examples of point music. We are currently listening to a later piece by Oliver Messin, Le Mer Noir, which is Blackbird. Stockhausen's Chris Buell was followed by Du Pezzi, composed by Italian composer Lucinio Biro, in 1951 and first performed in 1952. The performance you just listened to was performed by Romald Teco on the violin and Dennis Russell Davis on the piano. Burio uh, said, with these works I entered the melodic world of Dallapicciola. All these same works allow me to leave it. Burio explored electronic music later in his career, starting with Thelma Omaggio a Joyce in is portrayed slightly differently in the Twilight Zone episode uh, 8, season 1. In the TV show, the wife is cruel and malicious, intentionally destroying his books. In the story, the wife is frivolous and oblivious. While there are hints, talking like reading is an unclean act, or that it is hinted that she shouted at him um, if he doesn't come straight home from work, there's no like obvious showings of her like hatred or anger also in the book Henry has more drive once he realizes that the bomb hit he goes straight for the library on the television show he wanders around tries to commit suicide eats food a lot of this is probably due to the TV show being longer so it requires more content but I think what was added actually takes away from the original story. (laughs) 